Welcome to the Be Free RE podcast, where you learn how to make your job optional. I'm your host, John, who's just getting started on his journey. But in the last year, I moved across the country, bought four apartments, make money as a landlord, no longer pay rent, and I have my first child. I'm joined by your co-host and my guide, Tony Angotti, who in five years quit his job and now manages over 80 units through a combination of house hacks, flips, and partnerships. So with that, let's jump into how you can do less of what you have to do and more of what you want to do. Tony, how you doing, man? Yeah, I am rocking my quarantine beard. It's, uh, I get made fun of and say it looks like cartoon beards, like where they just draw lines on people's faces. <laughs> um, so people can't see the video, but I basically look like Bob from Bob's Burgers right now. Very cool. Um, Google image search and you'll get a good idea. Nice. Yeah, for me, I uh, have basically the same haircut as my one and a half year old daughter. So it's a pretty good look for me. Nice. Nice. <clears throat> That's uh, ideal. So what do we have going on? So today we have uh, Carlo calling in with some questions about what the world will look like, you know, post-COVID. Everyone wants to know. Uh, We have Greg with a question about land, and then we have Hayana asking about some refinancing. But before we jump into that, let's, uh, I think there's a story we should kick off with. A story we should kick off with, yeah. So I guess tenant problems. I I always used to, right, not used to, but I used to say I have like three favors that I do a year for tenants. Um, like I have three in me for the year, yeah. and I remember you just like somebody calls with a story, and they need help with something, like hey, I'm gonna be late on my rent, or I can't take the increase, or blah 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 blah. And I have like three charity cases a year that I say, okay, whatever. And when I do these charity cases, I go into them not expecting any of my kindness to be repaid at all. Uh, just because, I mean, I generally find that any of these things that I do to help people out, they usually don't return the favor. It's just nature of the beast as a landlord you're always the evil landlord and the i don't know what the word would be but you're always the one like just (laughs) hammer people you're the man and i've become totally comfortable with understanding that yes society views me as the evil landlord that's totally okay because i know in my heart that i'm not i have some compassion for people that are really trying well, I have one case that I'm dealing with right now where the guy, uh, he's been behind on his rent for 10 months, probably. Wow. And pro- and we've been saying since the beginning, like, don't get behind two months. We understand you're having a problem with your, you know, your job. Don't get behind two months. If you get behind two months, we're going to file on you. And we were charging him the late fee. He was still paying the late fee. We were going, going, going. And then in January, he stopped paying. So he kept trying, we're trying to work it out. I understood his situation. He was having a child. I going through all this different stuff in his life. And I was like, you know what? He's one of my charity cases. Okay, fine. So we kept pushing him. We were working with him. He's paying a little bit. And then a couple months ago, I guess three months ago from today, which is in April, he just stopped paying. So his lease was due to be up at the end of April. And we figured, you know what, we can evict him. It'll take 30 days or we can just let his lease expire, see if he gets caught up, 
So we unfortunately wasted a month thinking maybe he would get caught up. Then we filed for the eviction. Well, we get the hearing. The hearing is supposed to be the end of March. So what happened in March? Well, the governor and everybody in Pennsylvania put a stay on evictions. So I basically told him, and this is after a whole lot of back and forth and garbage, and he's telling me, he sends me his text message that says, no more evictions, and he, his comment was, I'm just going to leave this here. And I was like, okay, thanks, buddy. And I, I basically, I just told him, like, look, man, you have two options. Option number one, you can just leave. We'll drop the eviction case. Like, we won't, you know, we'll sign a document that says that you're leaving. We're not going to file collections on you or anything for the money. We'll sign that. You can just go. And it'll be cool. He's already lined up a place to go to. It's not like he doesn't have an apartment to go to. He already lined up to go stay with his mom or whatever. So he like, he has a place to go. Um, And I said, option number two is you just keep dragging this out. We're going to go to court. Our court case got kicked to mid June. You're going to owe us like $4,000 at that time. We're going to win the eviction because not only are you going to owe us $4,000, but you're also overstaying the lease because you were supposed to be gone at the end of this month. Oh, man. And we're going to file collections on you. And it's going to show up on your record as a um, as like a, you know, eviction. And then we're also going to attempt to garnish wages of which I don't know how much will actually go through. Like it's hard to actually garnish wages in Pennsylvania. Um, lawyers told me he's done it before, but it is difficult, but it's like, I told him you can just get out of this. It's God free. Just leave, leave the apartment in good condition. We'll be done. And the guy curses at me. He writes you like the letter you, he doesn't like, I don't know. He's treating this like I didn't do him a favor all over this whole past amount of time since, like I said, like 10 months ago when we started, working with him on everything and now his entire demeanor changed in like an instant so two things from this that i learned i guess number one if you're gonna do some kind of kindness as a landlord just don't expect it to be repaid to you i I learned that lesson way before so like i'm not even taking this situation personally because it's just like when you loan money to a friend when you loan money to a friend even if they say they're going to repay it back to you you just kind of don't expect it to be repaid because then you'll just get upset if you do. And then number two is like, you should probably not offer leniency in the first place. Uh, (laughs) I do it in rare instances, but now I'm kind of worried about like, I don't know if he's going to go to the news and talk about how he's getting evicted during coronavirus and stuff. And it's like, buddy, you were getting evicted long before coronavirus. You're just using it as an excuse now. Because, I mean, we've worked with so many tenants right now on payment plans and everything, and they approached us proactively. And this guy has just been radio silence until today he texted us that picture of the stay on evictions. And now he's trying to use that as an excuse. And it's like, like dude, you haven't paid me in four months, like, like three or four months. It's like, coronavirus wasn't stopping you from working then so i don't know some people will take advantage but you kind of just have to take your lumps yeah this guy hit like the stupid jackpot unfortunately for him i think like if it, oh yeah if it wasn't for this 
he probably would have got out of lease because April would have rolled around. <laughs> he would have just been like, all right, man. You're well, the, the eviction was already scheduled for early April. That's when it was like, or like end of March. And then end of March happened. And then they rescheduled it for middle April. It was supposed to happen in like a couple days. And then after the second stay at home order got released or whatever, that eviction stay thing, then they pushed it to mid June. And he even said something like, I'll see you in a couple days. Like it was a threat. Like he was going to come to my house or something. And it's like, dude, get out of here, get out of here. And then I tried to bait him into texting me that it was a threat, but he didn't, he didn't bite on that. I, <laughs> I so bad wanted him to say, yeah, I'm going to come to your house because then I would have been like, Oh, now I get to file because if you're a threat to anyone's health or safety, I get to file for an emergency eviction. Oh, um, well, another lesson there is always use a PO box oh, because yeah. you don't want them to know where you live. <sighs> yeah. Well, I learned no good D goes unpunished. <laughs> that much. Uh, I do have other stories where people have repaid me with kindness, but it's usually the opposite. Yeah. Um, but every once in a while you find somebody who understands you're trying to help them out and they, they do the right thing. I don't know, but all landlords are super rich and all landlords have a limitless pot of money to pay for things. And we're all evil capitalists that are just trying to take advantage of the, uh, (laughs) of whoever our tenants we're trying to take advantage of our tenants yeah well at least we know where we stand (laughs) sure (laughs) so uh let's roll into uh carlo's question about what the future will be cool hey this is carlo from pittsburgh and i have a few questions in regard to today's market conditions especially as it relates to income producing real estate my first question is, do you feel there will be a decline in cash flow due to newly released unemployment numbers of $2 million? And on top of that, my second question is, while there's a hesitation in the marketplace, do you believe there could be an opportunity to buy and expand one's portfolio? I just wanted to say thank you for all the great content. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you. Tony, what do you think? Give me a minute to collect my thoughts. What do you think? So, you know, there's a great saying, predictions are hard, especially about the future. So I think <laughs> in general, that's how I how I would answer the first part of that question. But I do think you can look to the 2007, 2008 um, kind of market adjustment for some, some guidance. Uh, we are in kind of an unprecedented time. I think the unemployment numbers are above 15 million now, which is pretty wild, literally like an order of magnitude higher than it's ever been in the past. So Mm -hmm. hard, hard to really say with a lot of confidence, but what's about to happen. But we do know in the past when we've had recessions, you know, rents, rents don't really drop that much in terms of, uh, your ability to fill rent. Um, and you and I have talked about this a little bit. It's kind of just a unique market event where, you know, I, I guess people are laid off, but a, a lot of them are on, I don't know, I guess mandatory. Furlough. Yeah, mandatory furlough is probably be a better description. Yeah, so they're furloughed. So basically they're, you know, the intent is for them to go back to work. They keep their benefits. So the companies are expecting to have their people come back. Right. Eventually. 
Um, that's at least the goal. I think that this question is best answered by looking at sort of your own tenant populace. So like if you have a bulk of tenants that are in the restaurant industry or bartenders or some kind of service industry, I do think that a lot of those companies may unfortunately close down for good, which is bad. Um, so if you have a lot of tenants that are in that situation, perhaps you should worry. Um, however, the government's doing a lot for unemployment and benefits and things like that. So I think that a lot of our tenants will still have money coming in. And at least in Pennsylvania, the unemployment benefit, I think, is half of your monthly pay up to $560. And then in addition to that, the federal government is doing $600 on top of that. So a lot of people that are out of work right now may very well be making more money on unemployment, at least in the immediate, than they were working. So a lot of tenants should be totally fine. Now, that's in most markets, I think, like most kind of Pittsburgh-like markets. But if you're in an area like New York or San Francisco or somewhere where rent is really high, that $2,400 probably extra probably doesn't help them out that much. Now, I don't know like what the state benefit is. You know, I don't know what people get for their state unemployment checks in those areas. But if you're in kind of an average cost of living state, I imagine your tenants will be fine as long as that extra unemployment is there and everything like that. So it really depends how fast the country recovers. I mean, if you think that most people will go back to work after this, then it's probably just a temporary speed bump. A lot of your tenants will still be able to pay. Some might not, but you'll probably be okay long-term. But if you think that this is going to go on longer than six months, then no companies are going to reopen and things like that. Well, then we have a bigger, bigger thing. But you were talking about how we discussed this before. And I mean, a lot of what's going on in the economy, and I'm not an economist in any way. I know that we were probably due for a slight recession or what would they call it? Like, a correction. pullback of the a correction yeah. in the economy. But um, it's a little bit different with this because it's sort of like a forced business shutdown, right? The government is forcing the companies to shut down. It's not something that's structural to the economy like it was in 2007, 2008, where, gov where like lenders were putting loans out there that they shouldn't have been, stuff like that. that. This is just the government saying you, you literally can't operate your business. So eventually the government's going to cave in and they're going to say we can, you know, we can start working again. Um, maybe there's some restrictions and some industries are hurt, but I suspect a lot of these people will go back to work and we'll be we'll be fine. Maybe that's overly optimistic, but the benefit to being in real estate is that somebody always needs a place to live. So, you know, unless you think that half of the workforce is just going to be on no income, which is like a apocalyptic event, basically. Now we're on that, what was that political guy? Andrew Yang, universal basic income or whatever. You'll still be collecting rent though, because they'll still be giving you checks from their universal basic income. Um, but that's digressing a lot. So I don't know, John, maybe you can help me get back on track. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think you're, the main thing is that it's a pretty unprecedented situation. It's also a fairly unprecedented response from the government. You know, essentially all, the entire playbook that was rolled out over eight months for 2008 has been rolled out in like three weeks. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's $2 trillion. It's pretty wild. So I, I don't think there's going to be short-term issues. Um, I I do think probably long-term there's going to be some interesting hiccups, and that might help us transition to the next part of, uh, you know, are there opportunities and what does that look like? So I, I know my wife and I have talked about this a little bit, and I think, you know, our official position on this is because there's so much uncertainty, you just want to have cash, and you want to have that cash to either weather the storm or to be advent, you know, take advantage of an opportunity when you see one. Um, you know, we've basically looked at people that were Airbnb and things, and really relying on Airbnb income. Um, uh, in general, I think the beaches are really hurting. The beaches are closed, so those markets. Um, I don't see a lot of softening in the price, but I, you know, I hear a lot of. Uh, Frustration, I guess, from people that were trying to operate their business like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to think those people they can put those mortgages on deferral, right? And uh, there's kind of this long lull that the government has enabled, but eventually, you know, those, that mortgage uh, forbearance, you know, it's not like oh, you don't have to pay the rent. It's like it's all. It, there's basically a balloon payment coming. So I do anticipate, you know, not everyone. But in general, people aren't great at saving money, and when you have a balloon payment like that, you're you're gonna see some things shake out. So, I would think the beach markets probably around beach time, around summertime, uh, you're probably gonna see some stuff happen there. Uh, I haven't seen it like in the mountains and like the cottages. I haven't. Uh, I actually hear a lot of people booking that. They're like escaping New York and they're going <laughs> into the woods. So, uh, but yeah, I mean that that's kind of what we're. Uh, that's what we're observing and anticipating on our end anyway. Yeah, that makes sense, 100%. I mean, I think a couple different opportunities are going to come up. So if you're talking just prices, I'm not 100% certain that prices are going to come down dramatically just because even if you remove a lot of buyers from the buying pool, we were in such a seller's market that even if a lot of those buyers come out, you're still going to be close to a balanced market. So I don't know if the prices take a huge hit, at least over the relative, like immediate, I mean, one to two years, I don't think they're going to decline like bottom fallout or anything. Mm. Um, Additionally, interest rates are going to stay low for the foreseeable future while the government tries to prop back up the economy. Yeah, Um, maybe even go negative, in which case real estate could get more valuable. It'll be really interesting. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, however, I do think, like you said, there are going to be some people in tough situations. And I think this opens up an opportunity to have more seller finance conversations with sellers. Mm. So like people that definitely like the income that their real estate provides, and you can provide them that by offering to kind of like take over their you know, loan payments or present them with creative terms. Um, that help get them out of that situation, but help get you control over the real estate. So you might want to start brushing up on some different like creative finance strategies, um, some different books like that, but there might be more of this opportunities in the future. Additionally, I think that a good target that we've even been looking at are trying to find a way to identify people like 
a lot of people who own small businesses also own real estate. Mm -hmm. And I've run into a lot of sellers who are looking to sell their real estate to be able to support their primary business. So I think that there's an opportunity there where if you can, you know, target those kind of sellers, they're going to be a lot more motivated than somebody who maybe just is a landlord or has a regular day job and has one property or something like that. Um, I've already had conversations with, you know, more than 10 sellers in my local market who were like, yeah, you know, I, I own a restaurant. I want to keep the restaurant going, looking at selling my, my real estate portfolio because I, I may need to raise cash to help get it through. It's like, those are some people who are pretty motivated right now. And they're also people who may consider seller finance because they might own the property outright. They may only need, like say their building's worth $500,000. They may only need $50,000 today. So then they could, you know, take your $50,000 and then give you a loan, a, per, a private loan for the rest of it. Um, and then they would be the bank for you. Yeah, so, to, to add on to that, like basically all the banks are slammed with these SBA loans that they have to give out to businesses right now. Right. And I, I read that they only closed like 10% of them so far or less or something like a very low amount of them have actually been closed from the requests that have poured in. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I have some family in this business and they're basically overwhelmed. They, they like almost can't handle the influx that they're getting. But the, the, I guess why that's relevant is any other loan application is not getting handled, right? Because they are uh, obligated essentially with the government to handle these loans first. So if you're a restaurateur and you need some other kind of loan, you're not getting it right now. I mean, you know, you're, you're going in, you have to go into alternative areas to get money, whether that's selling your real estate or whatever. So that's, that's part of the reason why I would anticipate those people, uh, even though they are going to get those, you know, $10,000, I forget what they're called. They're like payroll personnel and property loans or something. Yeah. Right. But you know, it's very hard for them to get any kind of other loan right now. One, because their revenues have dropped to zero. So it's like, how do you even underwrite that business for a loan right now? Mm -hmm. so banks are all risky. And then two, they're so slammed with the other, I forget how much it, it is, but it's, it's like half a trillion dollars worth of, they're essentially grants that need to be given out right now. So sorry, yep. just a little context there for like, I, I would anticipate those people to really want to discuss with you and, you know, be very interested in what kind of financing you can help them with. Yeah. And pretty much a lot of, you know, a lot of people that own small businesses that are hurting right now, like, like I said, a lot of them also own real estate. So those could be people to discuss creative terms with, which help you get a better deal, but also help them get out of their situation that they're in. Um, so there's that part of it. I guess the only caveat that I see or something that's not getting talked about as much lately is a lot of the criteria for the loans, uh, like any kind of loan are starting to become more stringent. So like banks are requiring um, higher credit scores, they're requiring higher down payments, that sort of thing. Even if the interest rates are low, that kind of restriction might, that might be what throws it into a little bit more of a buyer's market especially when you're talking like single family and small multifamily uh, residential properties. So like single family up to four unit, 
buildings just because there'll be less buyers that can potentially qualify for those. And that's obviously that could be something that would take a lot of buyers out of the buying pool such that that might shift it over to more of a buyer's market because if, especially for single family homes, I mean, if you're an investor that buys single family homes and FH like FHA increased their credit score requirements. So there are new requirements. I, I don't remember exactly what the new score is, but they came out with some more stringent requirements. If that continues, then, you know, obviously that cuts out a whole group, a whole giant amount of the buyers in that like lower priced home that as an investor, you're also trying to buy. So there's that part of it too. Yeah. And then even just to pile on, like in the capital market side, you know, all these mortgages eventually get sold to investors and the number of investors willing to buy mortgage backed securities now has significantly gone down. So that, mm-hmm. that I think that is also part of the reason why these credit scores are, are walking up, um, you know, even for uh, banks that aren't going to send you through one of the government agencies because uh, kind of the the requirements to be a high tranche loan are, are walking up because there's just less uh, demand now. So, yeah. And this is all kind of speculative because we're a little bit early early in this to kind of know what's going to happen. So maybe yeah. we'll revisit this after some time. Yeah, we're like but, four or five um, weeks into COVID right now, just for content. But I think that the takeaways here are to keep as much cash as you can, because whether there's opportunities in the future or whether you just need to help yourself out, you're going to need cash. Learn more about seller finance strategies, because those might be around and then take really good care of your own personal finances so that if there is an opportunity, your credit score, your debt to income and all those other things are in a good enough place to be able to take advantage of them. So as long as you do those three things, you should be better off no matter what happens than if you don't. If you just sit on your hands and watch the Tiger King show or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. Care. Damn Carol Baskin. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, official COVID answer now. Now that we've yeah. Tiger King. All right. Well, that was really good. She uh, created this this virus. Oh yeah. Carol Baskin. Yeah, Carol yeah. Baskin truther. Uh <laughs> Well, uh, I don't know what to say to that other than let's There's nothing to say to that. It's a train wreck. So what's the next question? Yeah, let's roll into our next question. (laughs) Good evening. My name is Greg. I was calling with a real estate question. I live in California where the cost of housing is very high. I was wondering if buying land is a good investment in that it's oftentimes less costly without the cost incorporated of the structure and um, could be maybe a good like initial investment, sort of a progressive investment um, to make before stepping up to eventually buying a house. Um, So curious how land holds its value and uh, what sort of risk there may or may not be with buying land as compared to a house which might be susceptible to something like an earthquake thank you tony do you have your thoughts gathered or should i go first on this one uh you should go first on this one okay 
So California is a really interesting market in general. I would say the Pacific Northwest kind of has the same situation going on right now. Maybe parts of Colorado as well. And I mean, I guess there's all the platitudes about real estate, which is location, location, location. But I think to be kind of more specific, uh, when you look at California, you know, the cost of new construction now with like all the new regulations and fire codes, it's something like $250,000 to build a house, something like that, you know, less in some markets, higher in some other markets. So when you're buying a house that's, you know, whatever worth, let's say a million dollars to make it easy, your land is essentially, you know, being priced in at like, you know, seven hundred. dollars $750,000. So you can actually look and see on the from the government what they say the land is worth. And the important, I guess, reason that I'm bringing this up is, one, um, you can often assume that land will be cheap, but that's not always the case. And two, that is what you'll be paying taxes on, is what the government says the land is worth. And the taxes are important because when you're buying land, you most likely won't be able to live on it right away. Uh, Perhaps you can do some kind of off-the-book stuff in like an Airstream. This would be particularly California of you at the moment. (laughs) To live in an Airstream and, uh, you know, kind of make it work while you essentially do all the development of that land. But uh, the main thing is, you know, you need a place to live. So if you're buying that land... You want to, as quickly as possible, have that either replace your current rent payment or start making you money as an investment. And um, I guess the way it works in real estate is there's like a spectrum of risk. And at one end of the spectrum is you buy this like brand new house that's like, or maybe not brand new, but anyway, you buy a house that's permitted. Maybe it already has a tenant and, you know, that's like kind of a... Uh, low level of uncertainty, let's call it, not risk, but uncertainty. You kind of know what the tenant's like. You can see them. You know what the house is going to look like. You know, you can pull the permits, et cetera, et cetera. All the way on the other end is development. And development, you know, I can say this confidently, is the riskiest aspect of real estate. Highest returns, also highest risk. So I think you have to, you know, the interesting answer to this question is how do you get to yes on it? But in general, I think land often has this like kind of appeal of like, oh, this will be beginner friendly because it should be cheaper and this, that and the other. But in general, not only are you building a house, you're also learning about utility hookups and you're learning about navigating government agencies and uh, man, just all the regulation that goes along with building and permitting uh, and architectural reviews and environmental impact assessments. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's not for the faint of heart. And I think a, a good, uh, proxy is a lot of these people that want to do homesteads. So this is a, you know, an interesting way to sort of be financially independent is you build what are called these, um, who's this crazy guy out of Maine? He basically teaches you like grow your own food and you live in your own house and it's, you build the walls with recycled tires. But anyway, uh, essentially people that want to be like a hundred percent sustainable hippies do this and it takes them on average like 10 years to actually get their house built permanent and through the whole process mm. and the build the build alone is like two years and that's you know with volunteers so anyway uh i'm, I'm interested what your thoughts are on this tony yeah it's an interesting perspective because i mean being born in 
Pittsburgh and still living here, investing here, never really moving away. Land is usually pretty cheap, but to be honest, the closer to the city you are, usually the only land you can buy is like almost unbuildable land. Mm -hmm. So until you get further away, you know, you're not really going to find that many plots and they're still fairly cheap. So the property taxes probably aren't going to kill you as much as they would, like you said, in, you know, California, where a lot of the value of the house or value of the property is actually the land. Um, so there's that part of it that's kind of interesting to consider. The difficult thing about this question is that it's really going to depend on like where you are, how the land is situated, all those kinds of things. If it's a farm, is it close to the city, not close to the city? Like all those questions. So I think what's probably more useful is to just kind of go over some things to consider. So if you're looking at land to kind of develop, and I'm not a developer, but I know in Western Pennsylvania, one of the big thing is like mineral rights and uh, downtown things are like air rights. You should always be evaluating kind of what rights come with the property so that you know how you can generate income from that. Like I met a guy at one of the RIAs who in Western Pennsylvania before the internet, he would go around and find people who owned large tracts of land that had like forested areas on it. What he would do is he would let them stay in their house and then um, basically all the land other than around their house, he would own like timber rights and everything too. Mm -hmm. So he would just sell off the timber. He would also own the oil, gas, mineral rights. So he would lease the oil, gas, mineral rights over to the uh, to like natural resources companies. And then he once the timber was cleared, he had an agreement with a home builder and the, the timber company's agreement was that when they were done um, cutting down all the trees, they had to level level the the ground so that it was buildable. And then he would sell the land to the uh, developer to build new homes. But then also he'd still own the oil, gas, mineral rights so he could lease out <laughs> the underground's natural resources to still make money. So this guy, for instance, made money like a ludicrous number of ways on one plot of land over very many years. But that's one way where like land could be infinitely profitable almost. It's kind of crazy. But if you're talking just sort of like an individual property to build your house, I mean, you're going to want to look at like cost of construction. So how much does it cost to build in your area? Additionally, like you touched on a little bit, like what's permitted in your area? You know, is this land even buildable? Because different areas are going to have like requirements for how far away from the road something can be um, or how close to the road it can be. What goes into hooking up utilities? You also need to check if internet is even available in your area because some areas it's like internet's not coming for like 10 years. So you're going to be using a hotspot all the time. Um, what's the highest and best use for that area? Like if you're just trying to build a house, are you really going to pay the cost of land that's zoned for high density commercial use? The land is going to cost a lot more than just somewhere where you're just trying to build a single family home. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you also, like you said, location is key. So you want to make sure that you're in the path of progress, like, you know, you probably want to be in an area where things are going towards that aren't highways. Like you obviously don't want to be <laughs> next to a highway. So there's a lot more valuation that you need to do when you're buying land that I think is more complicated than, to be honest, even I would really get into. Like I said, I'm not really a developer. 
Um, if I was looking to build my own house, I would weigh the costs and look at a lot of those kind of questions, see what I need to evaluate and talk to like an attorney and a home builder and people that do this all the time and just talk to them before I even purchase the land just because yeah, you, they're the ones who are going to know what you're getting into. Like you need to talk to the right professionals to know what questions to ask and what things to evaluate um, so that you know that you can build whatever you're trying to build on that land. And then by talking to those people, you can get all the information you need to make a decision on if it's worth the cost to do so. Um, yeah. We, we have two family members who actually did something like this. So, you know, one of them, which I think is a less interesting case is, you know, both are in the country, to be very candid. Um, and the one basically took their parents' lot, they split it in half, and they built on it. You know, so uh, I think that the lesson you can learn from there is you almost want to talk to who owns the land now, and you want to basically reach an agreement before you have any money transferred. Um or a contract like officially signed where you are responsible to give them money and you want to say, this is what I want to do. And it's all pending on me getting all the paperwork done. Right. So if I can get my architectural review done and the environmental assessment and the, the county and the town will sign off on what we're trying to do, then, you know, one, I want rights to purchase this and you won't sell it. And two, then I will give you the money, but not before because you actually want them to help you in case, you know, the property needs to be surveyed and it's unclear what the property lines even are and all that stuff. Um, and the other family member we have that did this actually did it in Belgium, but uh, they essentially live on a semi-permanent structure. So it's not you know what you would it would be like kind of like a tiny house uh, except it's it's large um, and you have to look up exactly what the requirements for a semi-permanent structure are but the way it works is you get agricultural land um, and you're usually allowed to have like a, a barn or something and then you're allowed to have a, a semi-permanent structure and uh, hmm. you're kind of flirting with the law here a little bit in terms of like what you're building and not building um, but in California, where the weather is pretty good, you might be able to have two or three semi-permanent structures that are detached with like an open living space in the middle. And if, uh, you know, if I were in your shoes, that would be something that I would, uh, that kind of uh, layout is something I would look into where essentially you have this central open space uh, kind of act as a living space, but it doesn't count as like square footage against whatever you're trying to accomplish on your ag land. But, uh, you know, in California, you know, that's... You're basically, I mean, you, you can buy ag land in Malibu and it's going to cost millions of dollars, right? Or you can buy, <laughs> you know, e- even the deserts are starting to get expensive in California. So it's a, it's just a fascinating place. But, you know, if I was going to do it, I would uh, definitely understand like some kind of tiny house or semi-permanent structure, Airstream. I would figure out like, how am I going to get that out there? You know, I'm going to need petroleum or natural gas hookups or, you know, like a solar array is not going to carry you all the time unless you're in a very particular part of the country. And then water, you know, you're always going to need water. What are you going to do with your gray water and your waste? So, you know, it's it, even that in itself, you know, if you enjoy that kind of adventure, uh, you know, that's what you're after. But, you know, it, it'll be a long process to building a house, you know, but maybe that's what you're after. So... There you go. That's my thoughts anyway. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, there's just a lot to consider. And like I said, in summary, 
you probably want to talk to a builder, a lawyer, an architect, the township that you're building in, all the different people that are going to know the answers. Because if you rely on Google and things like that, you're likely to get uh, <laughs> in hot water, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, and I mean, for what it's worth, I do think the type of person that wants to do this tiny house thing, you know, I do think that they're the more, uh, like, they're going to want to talk about it, right? Like a commercial developer, they're going to be a little closer to the chest. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, with that, Tony, anything to add before we roll on to Hyanna's question about refinancing? No. All right. Let's do it then. Hi, this is Hyanna from Manhattan Beach, California, and I was calling uh, regarding a possible refinancing, um, wondering if it's best to go with a mortgage broker versus a traditional bank um, and who may be able to provide the better rates and, you know, um, and also any other tools or resources you can provide. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Bye. All right, question about refinance. Yeah, so I guess the first question or the first question I thought of was just broker versus bank. And I think that what it really comes down to is like how much legwork do you want to do as an individual? I know that for me, I don't like to do all the legwork of calling around to different banks and stuff like that and pricing around myself. So I always go the mortgage broker route just because that's what their job is. I mean, they're pricing out the loan that you want and looking for different policies based on or different loans based on what fits you best. So I'll gladly pay whatever extra point or cost it is to use the mortgage broker over the bank. However, if you're the one that's going to look into it yourself, like you're going to call the different banks, you're going to do all that sort of thing, send everyone your paperwork, all that kind of stuff, then yeah, I mean, you might find a better deal on your own. However, that's just going to be a lot of a lot of work um, up front. I think, aren't, aren't you refinancing right now, John? We are. It's, it's honestly, we kind of missed the window. Uh, now that we're in COVID time, uh, the rates aren't really compelling enough for us, which I mean, is a good thing. We have a good rate already. But mm-hmm. yeah, I would I would agree broadly with you know you're you're essentially paying someone to shop for rates for you. So uh, my advice would be if you're gonna do the work yourself, just be very organized. You know, start a like a Google Drive or something. You're gonna get your mortgage statements. You know, get your taxes. You know, just get all your paperwork in order. And not every bank, but a lot of the serious banks are all going pretty much to the same system where it's like fill out our application, which mm-hmm. is going to take, I don't know, seven minutes. You need to know your social security number and your spouse's social security number if they're on the lease with you or, you know, you need that kind of information. And then you're just going to upload your docs. Uh, so once you have your document package ready, it's not, you know, you're basically doing like seven to 10 minutes per application. So it's not too bad there. That being said, I think the broker's worth it. <laughs> like what Tony's saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, life is just kind of short, but like, 
you know, if you're furloughed right now and like you need a, you know, it's a thing to do, like, yeah, you should make yourself, I mean, you're probably going to save yourself, I would say between five and a thousand dollars, 500 to a thousand dollars. So, um, you know, it's a good way to put some money in your pocket. That's for sure. And then she also asked about different tools. I think one of the tools you alluded to a little bit is just like Google Docs or, or Google Drive, I mean. Like just having all your stuff in a, you know, make sure it's secure. Like I trust Google Drive, but um, like make sure your docs are in a secure place. But if you have them all in the same file, it makes things way easier if you are applying to different lenders or it's even just better in general because if you ever need to apply for any loan, all your stuff's right there. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like if you're somebody who has a number of different assets and loans and everything, um, like I know personally, I mean, we have a number of rental properties. So the banks always ask for a personal financial statement that shows all of your holdings and everything. And that's quite frankly always a pain in the butt for me because I have to go through and calculate like, look up all the current loan balances, look up all the account numbers, all that stuff. So if you just keep like a spreadsheet with all that stuff mostly filled out, that'll save you a lot of time too. So the first tool I would mention would just be some kind of place to keep all your documents, like a document repository. Um, That's super useful. And then additionally, whichever bank or mortgage broker, whoever you apply with will probably have tools to help you understand like the process, like timelines and everything. Um, you can use, there's certain sites that kind of aggregate like mortgage rates and stuff. Uh, keep in mind though, that if you look at those sites, the advertised rate is very rarely what you'll actually pay yeah. because the advertised rate's going to be with you paying so much money in points points are basically just you pay for a certain reduction in your interest rate up front. So you pay a lump sum of cash to have your interest rate reduced by a certain amount. Um, you could also look up calculators to see if that pays off or not based on how long you plan on living in the property, because sometimes it just doesn't make financial sense to pay for the lower interest rate. Um, everybody thinks lower interest rates better, but if it costs you, so much lump sum you need to figure out how much that's actually saving you and how long you're going to live there to see if it's worth it um that's a little bit on the tools uh but the biggest tool that i say for people to use not to call myself a tool but uh (laughs) is your is your realtor um because your realtor can help not only direct you to like mortgage brokers and banks and things like that to help you evaluate but they can also help you get an idea of like what your house is worth before you even do this so that if you're trying to get like a cash out refinance or you're trying to get money out of your house, you can start to get an idea of like, what's it worth? Um, additionally, uh, you should also start to make a packet for the appraiser, like get all your maintenance records for the house together, any improvements that you did. So if you like added a new roof or if you put in a new furnace or any of those kind of things, put it together in a packet for the appraiser so that you can support a new value. Additionally, your realtor that helped you buy the house um, should be willing to help you uh, pull some comps to see, like, you know, what's the value for my house, like we talked about. But then those comps that they pull, they can also print for you, and you can print those out and give them to the appraiser when they're at your house and say, like, 
these are some things my realtor said might be useful for you. And then you can also go through with your realtor and say like, this comp had a 20 year old house or a 20 year old roof, a 10 year old furnace. Mine's brand new. Um, so my house should be worth presumably more. Um, those are some things that your realtor can help you with. It's just, you can tell your realtor, Hey, I'm thinking about refinancing. Can you give me a comparative market analysis? That's what it's called. And then your realtor should be happy to provide you with that. Um, and that'll, that'll definitely be helpful with the appraisal. Yeah. And even if you aren't going to do a cash out refi, so you know, you still want your house to appraise high one for your personal sense of satisfaction, but, uh, too, because you want to, uh, you'll often get a better rate depending on the loan to value of the loan. You know that it doesn't matter once you go below a certain amount, but you know certainly, you know if you uh, are above the 80% range, you will be mm-hmm. rewarded for getting under 80 and even under 75, depending on your state. So. Yeah, that makes a little, I think you also had some good advice, Tony, about what not to say when the appraiser comes to visit. Oh, yeah. Don't don't talk about like, hey, I just fixed the roof leak or like, hey, yeah, the furnace was acting funny until I kicked it and now it works fine. Or like, yeah, we used to have termites, but then we got it treated like you don't need to go into every little problem about your house with the appraiser. I see people do that all the time. Like just less is more. One hundred percent. Like. If they ask you questions, answer honestly, but like you don't need to go into way more detail than than is required. Like just, you know, give them the packet of information that you had prepared, answer some basic questions and let them go on with their job and on with their day. Additionally, make sure you clean your house before the appraiser comes because they are human and your clean house will show a lot better than a messy house. Yeah, agreed. I think landscaping goes a really long way as well. Mm hmm. Um, boy, I'm trying to think any other answers for Ayana. What, what should she expect to pay a broker? Uh, it depends. I mean, I don't, I think the way that they work and I'm not a mortgage broker, so don't quote me, but I believe the way that they work, like you're not actually going to pay the broker as your own closing costs. Like technically the bank pays the broker. Um, However, a lot of times that gets like worked into the loan somehow. So like you'll see the points on there and how they do it in the back room. To be honest, I don't, I don't know all the answers to that. I just know that sometimes it's more expensive to use the broker than it is not. So, yeah. And it depends on, it depends on their relationship with the bank too. Like some brokers are essentially just, wholesale dealers of certain mortgages so like they get a certain cost and then you know i'm not an expert in this industry but you can ask your broker like how do you get paid and they should give you an honest answer um i usually ask people like how do you get paid if it's not clear just because then they'll give you you know that's the only way for you to find out is to ask and if they tell you lies then that's not only unethical but could lead to problems for them down the road yeah, and I, I actually find people are usually very willing to answer the question, like, so how does this work for you? And that's it's, like, nonspecific enough that they'll actually answer it. Uh, typically, in our in my day job, uh, our brokers get a flat fee. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, it, it, it actually depends. There's different 
loss everywhere in terms of sometimes the rate gets padded sometimes it just goes into points and you know instead of a flat fee it gets rolled into points because that's how legally you can do it but um you know yeah so i was right <laughs> it depends on what loan they're writing yeah how exactly. it gets worked into your costs I it guess. also depends how far they take the loan through the underwriting process so you know if they just have your name and your info packaged up and they're basically like applying on your behalf they don't get as much juice as you know if they go through and they pull your credit for you and they do some desktop underwriting on your property you know you can imagine they do the appraisal you know that's like a much more uh, qualified lead essentially think of it as any other business where the more qualified the lead the more people are willing to pay for it and the more your your broker will get paid for for doing that work also you know so that cost gets mm-hmm. shared by someone so um but yeah, I think Tony's advice of like talk to your realtor. They probably actually have pretty good banking relationships, and the, candidly, your, your realtor doesn't have a lot of like adverse interest here uh, with you. You know, they want good relationships with the banks as well. So uh, yeah, and it helps them because I mean they're referring business. It helps them keep in touch with you. It helps a lot of things. And at that point, like you said, there's no adverse relationships. So, I mean, there's no incentive for them to send you somewhere astray. I mean, they want you to be happy because they want your future referrals and everything, right? So Exactly. And they, they also know if you're, like, refining or something like that. Uh, it Like Tony said, it's a free way to, like, stay in touch and stay top of mind. <laughs> right. Uh Awesome. All right, Tony. Well, I think with that, let's roll into the recap of what we discussed today. Okay. So for a quick rundown on what we discussed today, we talked about coronavirus and the uncertainty it's going to cause. Both you and I think in the short term, things will probably be okay. looks like there's a lot of government support. Um, Doesn't seem like there's a huge shift in property values yet. Long term, it really depends on how quickly you think we're going to pull out of this and how responsible you think people will be with their finances. But for you as an individual, make sure your personal finances are well situated, have some discipline, try and arrange cash so that you can either weather a storm or pounce on an opportunity. And then in terms of looking for for those opportunities, you know, think about creative financing, seller financing, and who, uh, you know, what is the profile of, uh, you know, a seller that wants to be involved in a transaction and, you know, might be a good fit for, for you as you're looking for someone who uh, is particularly motivated right now. Then we talked to Greg about some land. In general, land is more work. You're paying taxes right away. You're most likely not making any income right away. So you need to really think about what the highest and best use is going to be. And then... Uh, you want to basically de-risk the transaction as much as possible. So that means talking to the right people, understanding who the right people are, you know, really thinking in your head, what are all the different steps you have to do, getting from the land to the utilities to the construction to the architecture um, to getting the community on board. And you want to make sure you have all that lined up and then and only then really pull the trigger, so to speak. Um, and then refinancing with Hayana, um, in general, a broker is someone you're going to pay to do work for you. So you're going to give them some of your, your money and they're going to help you 
chase down the right bank. If you do decide to go out to banks and essentially shop for rates, you know, it is going to be more work, but there's going to be a little bit more reward in it for you. Maybe it's a good time in your life to do that kind of a thing. In general, we both, Tony and I both agree, you know, having all your documents in order is kind of the main key there in terms of making that shopping uh, as smooth and as, I guess, streamlined as possible. And then in terms of when you are going, you know, assuming you found your bank or you're going in with the appraiser, you want to make sure that it's easy for your appraiser to give you a high value. So that means making things sure that your documentation is orderly, you're, you're actually going to let them into the house and see what they need to see. And when they, when you do meet them, you know, your house is presentable and clean. Kind of no-brainers, but things that Tony has certainly seen. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> well, I don't know. What's the right word? You want to make sure you're presenting your best your best self here. Putting your best foot forward. Best foot forward. There you go. So, what did I leave out, Tony? Uh, that, was, that was great. All Nothing right. left out. Um, I guess we can go into our regular segment. Like, uh, what did you learn this week? We talked at the beginning about me, but how about you? Yeah, for me, uh, we're having some issues now that the weather's kind of thawing out. We're starting to get some uh, bug issues. So we, no. we have a tenant who um, we've lived in every one of our units. Um, so I, I know that this uh, unit had issues with ants, and we put out a ton of ant traps. Um, and now the tenant essentially called us uh and, uh, you know, she's under quarantine. She has ants in her kitchen. And I guess she was away for the weekend and came back to a lot of ants in her kitchen. And she can't go out to eat anywhere. So she's very reasonably, like, distressed and disgusted with what's happening. So on my end, I think the lesson there would have been uh, just anticipating that as essentially we get like some of those first thaws we probably should have done some proactive treatment around the perimeter of the property just to help keep these ants out um i don't know i'm a little torn about like you know how, what level of proactive uh response is needed here but it certainly would have been a lot cheaper to put out some bait outside and you know maybe i'm out 20 bucks then now we're kind of running around really trying to get an exterminator out there quickly because we, we like the tenant and, uh, you know, kind of feel for her, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, we have a lot of tenants that are, you know, antsy for repairs and we just have to keep talking to them like, hey, only certain stuff is really allowed right now. Other stuff, uh, you know, other stuff isn't as urgent, so you're going to have to be patient. And it's also funny, we talked earlier about the people that repay your kindness, and we have a tenant that uh, can't pay, so we put them on a payment plan because of coronavirus. Like, they couldn't, they didn't make money, so we, like, gave them a break and said, hey, you can do it. And then we had a storm the other day, and I get wake up to a bunch of nasty grams about how the roof is leaking and how they're going to sue us if we don't, get it inspected for mold and all this other kind of stuff it's like and it's like all right buddy thanks i mean i told them i was like hey yeah i'm gonna try to get somebody out there as soon as possible like there's only a few you know certain people who have waivers like emergency repairs are allowed but i can get the roof fixed but i don't know like how fast i can fix the inside stuff and they're like well you'll get it done 
within the next week or we're going to contact our lawyer. And I'm like, okay, have fun. Like, I don't know, buddy. Um, so I've had a lot of people, uh, go full psychopath on me. Yeah. So yeah, past week has been interesting. Probably just people stressed out. I mean, I remind myself of that too. Like a lot of these people are being unruly because I mean, a lot of them have lost their jobs. They're stuck inside. They like are uncertain. So a lot of these people are in kind of crappy situations. And actually this person too, after they did that, I responded to them like kindly. I didn't, I didn't like freak out back at them. And I just said, and then the the person's wife actually responded to me and said, hey, sorry, so-and-so was, you know, blowing you up. I was actually in the hospital because we're like pregnant and was having problems. So he was just stressed out and the roof leak didn't help. And I was like, okay, so you're not actually going to sue me then? And she's like, no, we're not going to go hire a lawyer. Like, just get it fixed as soon as you can, please. Yeah. I was like, thank you. Somebody reasonable here. I get but, what you uh, asked. Oh, so you're not going to sue me now? <laughs> I can play. Yeah, oh, yeah. I didn't. We were texting. I yeah, just yeah. I just said, like, so am I supposed to contact my lawyer? Question, question, question. Ooh. And that was what I asked. And then she said, no, we're not doing that. He was just upset. Wow. And I kind of gathered that because they texted me at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning about their leaking roof. And it's like, I don't know. I didn't respond till the morning because, like, nothing you can do about a leaking roof in the immediate anyway. I mean, yeah. What I, I'm not going to be able to set a roofer there at three o'clock in the morning. Like that doesn't happen. Put a bucket under it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's literally what you do. Put a bucket under it. It's like, what, what do they want you to do? Go up there with a bucket of tar and start spreading. Plus I, I mean, to be honest, it's probably not like a horrible idea, but I don't know if I've ever met anyone who after a roof leak has also had it checked for mold. Like, Unless it's been going on for a long time, you usually just fix the roof and then yeah. tear out the, the plastic. Because then you have to tear out all of the stuff that's wet anyway. It's so more like, about the baby coming, if I had to guess. You know, when, when a baby's probably. coming into the house, yeah. you know, you want... But, I mean, all the material that was wet's going to get torn out, obviously. So, like, other than maybe the framing. But once you remove the water leak, you don't get, you know the mold goes away as long as it's dried out properly and everything. Yeah. It's a, uh, I'm <laughs> knock on wood. That's not an area that I can speak with much uh, expertise. So <laughs> I'm not an expert either. I was a microbiologist though in a past life. Yeah. But you, uh, you know how to grow mold. <laughs> I do know how to grow mold, uh, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So right. I don't know. I mean, I guess, my thing I learned this week is just to stay level even whenever other people are kind of freaking out. Like as long as you stay professional when you're talking to them or reasonably professional, it's like you're never going to say anything that's going to hurt you. But if it ever does go to court and they freak out and say a bunch of unreasonable stuff, like they're going to say a bunch of things that are going to hurt them. So it's like I have a an old boss actually taught me because he was in local politics. He said his lesson when he was getting instruction on how to be like a council rep was never say anything to anyone that you wouldn't feel comfortable being on the front page of the newspaper. Yeah. And I've taken that lesson to heart with landlording because it's like, if I wouldn't be comfortable with that being on the front page of the newspaper, then I probably shouldn't say it because the bigger and bigger you get, the more and more likely it could 
be on the front page of the newspaper. So, yeah, I think very rarely is emotion actually helpful in communications. You know, a lot of times about business things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, fair enough. I, uh, in general, I think people communicate with too much emotion rather than uh, you know not enough, unless you're like one of those Mark Zuckerberg types. <laughs> So, <laughs> there you uh, go. Yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, we'll be sharing this on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, and Instagram. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Mark. Uh, well, I think with that we can probably close it out. So, Tony, where can they find you? Yeah, so they can find me at four one two agent on Instagram, four one two agent dot com. You can find me as Anthony and Gotti on Bigger Pockets or Tony and Gotti. Don't know which one I am on there nowadays. <laughs> um, and then also uh, been posting videos and we'll be reposting them to our B Free E R E uh, Instagram. Um, yeah. And then where can they find more information about the podcast? Uh, we'll shout that out in the outro. So, all right, everybody, enjoy this, uh, enjoy your week. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you want more, check us out at BeFreeRE on Instagram and let us know what you thought. Stay free.